2: I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Each week, we take a nonpartisan dive into topics related to the federal budget, the economy, and how it all affects our nation's future. This week, we'll talk about the growing national debt, which is uh, not unusual for us. Uh, it just hit $31 trillion, and our guest is going to be Bill Hoagland, Senior Vice President of the Bipartisan Policy Center. Then, uh, Concord Coalition Chief Economist Steve Robinson, will join us to discuss his new issue brief on a bill in Congress that would increase benefits for people who receive both Social Security and a pension based on employment that was not covered under Social Security. And we'll get into the details of that in our third segment. Uh, Concord Coalition Policy Director, Tori Gorman will join me for both conversations. First up is the national debt. Bill Tory and Steve welcome back to facing the future
3: good to be here
1: thanks Bob thank you Bob
2: you know um bill the uh the national debt hit 10 trillion in 20 2009 20 trillion in 2017 and it's now 31 trillion good. uh I was looking at the projection and it's uh projected to go over 40 trillion by 2030. Okay, so those are all just numbers. How do you put that in context in a way that um, people know what's important about that?
0: Well, thank you. And thank you for inviting me uh, today. Uh, well, the amount of when when you and I and Tori and Steve got on this merry-go-round, or at least when I got on this merry-go-round, the level of debt to the size of our economy, debt held by the public, was uh, something in the neighborhood of 24, 25%. Now that's back in 1970. And um, the level of debt today that we've accumulated relative to the size of our overall economy is will be the, will be the largest it ever has been in our history. It's double and it's double what the 50-year average has been, which is about 46%. So we are, in a context, we are accumulating an awful lot of debt that will have to be serviced one way or another in the future, and we'll come back to this. And to me, debt has always been uh, there's good debt, there's bad debt, but if this debt is continues to accumulate, it effectively is a tax on future generations and I'll come back to that later. Uh this this debt I
2: mentioned uh 31 trillion that's that's the so-called gross debt it's uh divided into a couple of different main categories and and they have very different effects. Uh could you d- discuss the difference between debt held by the public and uh intra governmental debt?
0: Yes, the amount of debt held by the public is that debt which uh, individuals, that we as individuals purchase T-bill rates or T-bills or whatever uh, that are issued as bonds. But then there is another sector to the debt, which is the debt that's intergovernmental in the sense that uh, Social Security, as an example, um, borrows money uh, from Treasury and it's owed within internally. Now, Economist, and I'm not as good an economist as uh, uh, other people, as you guys are, but it does, uh, to me, uh, I think uh, overall debt, because that debt that's intergovernmental has to be paid back somehow, someday also. But most economists focus strictly on that debt held by the public uh, because that's what has to be borrowed from the public or from foreign investors. well, it's about four, the difference between the gross debt and the public debt, debt held by the public, is I think somewhere around about $4 trillion, So not not nothing. But that means that's the amount of debt that's intergovernmental, uh, that we're obligated at some day, whether it's the highway trust fund or the social security trust fund or disability trust fund or any mm-hmm. of the military trust funds, it still has to be paid someday. And uh, And so I don't make the distinction that uh, as much as other people do about debt held by the public.
3: And I think a lot of lawmakers in D.C. would agree with you. I mean, you try and tell a constituent, oh, debt held by the Social Security Trust Fund. We don't need to worry about that. We don't need to pay that back. That's just debt that we owe ourselves. Try telling that to a Social Security beneficiary and watch them just go, what?
2: Yeah. (laughs) So
3: I I think, uh, you know, lawmakers in D.C. agree with your position, Bill.
2: Another distinction is the deficit and the debt. I know we, it, it seems, you know, we get this question a lot, but the, uh, the deficits, the one year uh, shortfall and then the deficits combined are the, uh, the debt. But so I, I preface that by saying that there's been a lot of talk about the deficit. Looks like it's going to be substantially less. It will be substantially less this fiscal year, which just ended, uh, than in the past couple and there's been, you know, some talk the administration has certainly been claiming that they've been doing a great job on deficit reduction. It seems to me that that's more a case of natural forces kicking in with than <laughs> than hard choices to reduce the deficit. What's the context of the shrinking but still substantial
0: uh, deficit? Well, from my perspective, this is an overstatement on the part of the administration, and I'm not being critical of uh, uh, uh Politicians have to sell their product. And yes, the deficits come down, but let's recognize the fact that both previous administration, the Trump administration, Obama administration, uh, because of COVID, we added a lot to the deficit, an emergency. And therefore, that, that emergency spending is going away. And that accounts for, from my perspective, as a major reason for the reduction in the deficit the annual deficit. Yes. But uh, again, uh, thinking in the broad context of your discussion here about debt, that those deficits that were large created more debt that has to be serviced down the road also.
3: Mm-hmm. Tori. So one of the questions people always ask is, you know, what's driving our debt? And I think a lot of people say, well, if we would just Stop assisting other, sending aid to other countries. You know, we could we could balance our budget, and we wouldn't need to worry about debt and deficit. So, uh, Bill, based on your experience, what 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 is driving the level of our debt?
0: Spending is out exceeding our revenues coming in. It's pretty. Mm -hmm. It's it's not. It's not rocket science. It's simple math. And uh, so, when you look at obviously, uh, you look at where we spend our money. on the spending side, let's be very clear: it is not foreign aid. Uh, as a farm boy from Indiana, it's not the farm programs, and I'm not suggesting that they couldn't be reformed. It comes down to basically about five things, and that is Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, and paying the net interest on the paying the net interest on the public debt, the annual interest payment, and I could throw in uh, uh, maybe. Other programs, but the, but basically, that's where the spending is going, and that's those are what, as you all know, are what are, required, are called uh, oh, I don't like the term entitlement programs, and they cannot they will go on uh, because if you if you if you meet a certain age requirement or you become unemployed or any of those, it's automatic that those benefits are going to be there. So the uh, bottom line is our our expenditures are, exceed our our revenues and uh, nobody likes to talk about increasing taxes, but then again, nobody likes to talk about reducing those programs, third rails of politics, being social security, Medicare, Medicaid, and the other programs. So uh, I, uh, I look to this as a, a long-term challenge for policymakers and how do you how do bring that uh, deficit, annual deficits under control and as I say, it's simple math. You're either going to have to reduce spending in those very sensitive programs, or you're going to have to raise revenues, or you're going to have to do a combination of the two. Which is which, which is what basically it will have to be, be to get any kind of consensus long term. Steve, you want to jump in?
1: Yeah. So. Uh... For for about the last decade and a half, interest rates uh, have been exceedingly low, and there was a period where a lot of politicians and economists even were saying, "Well, look, you know, interest rates are so low, we can we can just borrow all we need, and uh, you know, it's not not going to be a big deal." But uh, we've now seen in the last you know 18 months or so with inflation rising and interest rates rising. Uh, it looks like this you know is the, the old saying the chickens may be coming home to roost uh what what's sort of your perception on you know the this trade-off between you know interest rates are low we can borrow no don't worry uh but but now it looks like interest rates are rising have we have we gotten our have we set ourselves up for for a big a big problem here
0: well Steve I I'm in total agreement with you that the assumption during the uh, and, and it's a combination. Again, we have a, we had a major crisis in that in COVID, and it's not to suggest that we should government shouldn't have been intervening to provide uh, a safety net. Maybe we overdid it in terms of the amount of assistance was provided. But uh, the assumption was that, uh, or one of the reasons, so we could do this. And I think it was the new monetary theory or whatever that claimed that listen, low interest rates, we should be able to. Uh, spend whatever we want to. That's not a problem. And when when the inflation comes, we will correct for that with uh, increasing taxes and something. Of course, then that's back to the to the the, the legislative branch, not the not the, our friend Jay Powell having to control it. So it's, a, it's strange. But but to put 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 this in numbers. Uh, uh, this morning, I just glanced at at the ten year T bill rate uh, that I look at as a major factor in determining our interest payments is about hitting about 4%, 39 this morning. Um, I went back, uh, uh, Steve and Tori and Bob and, and uh, the little interactive model that I use a lot, uh, I plug that into the current uh, projections going out. And if I just, just take where we are today, Uh, at 3.9%, over the next decade, that will add another $3 trillion to the baseline in terms of uh, debt that we're accumulating. So we've got ourselves in a mess, from my perspective, by having assumed that we could have all this spending, it's not going to cost at very low interest rates, I don't think we're going to see those low interest rates. In fact, if j Powell is successful, we're going to continue to see those interest rates probably even go above the 3.9% that I'm seeing this morning. And that rate of increase then, as I think Tori mentioned earlier, that's interest payment that has to be made. And that, if you're worried about the debt and deficit, that means you need to be focusing on some of those investment programs, first of all, or national security, where we will be spending more just to pay the interest on the public debt than we are paying to secure our national national security. And I have one other issue that, again, I'm not very good at this uh, in terms of uh, thinking it all the way through, but I'm very concerned about the fact that, uh, uh, by the way, this creates a very strong dollar, obviously, as we're seeing, but the impact this has internationally uh, and globally. Uh, as our old friend Rudy Pinner liked to say, we're the best looking uh, horse in the glue factory. Uh, <laughs> we are, we're going, we attract uh, foreign investment. And uh, as I think of, uh, about 40%, 40% of our debt today is, uh, is that which is, thank you very much, uh, foreign investors. Uh, if we become, if this becomes questionable, as to whether or not we're going to be able to service our debt, uh, which I pray to God never comes to pass. But if that ever becomes an issue, then uh, we're going to start to lose the investments here uh, from our foreign investors, which will then be the price of money would further drive up interest rates because we'll try to attract more investment by increasing interest rates even more. So I think there's some real dangerous shoals out there coming. Uh, unless we start to focus more on this uh, issue uh, of the level of debt we have. I, I, that raises a question that
2: we've um, asked a couple of previous guests, and uh, without telling you what they said, um, you know, when you go back to tw- 30 years ago when the Concord Coalition started, one of the arguments that we made to, to great effect was that we had to get the deficit under control to bring down interest rates and to avoid inflation. Uh, that argument went by the wayside for several years uh, because we did have low interest and low uh, inflation. Now that it's come back with a vengeance and it's really dominating the political discussion to some extent, does it seem to you that concerns about inflation and rising interest rates might uh, have a political effect in terms of leading to more
0: responsible fiscal decisions? You'd like to think so. Uh, uh, But uh, uh, I, I obviously, Bob, I think that's, predic- that's uh, dependent upon what's going to happen here in about four weeks, at least in the near term. And it will be pred- very much a function of the outcome of the midterm elections. Uh, but uh, yes, uh, quite frankly, you're seeing people that are making the argument that Jay Powell is going too far that he's raising interest too much and too fast, but he also wants to control inflation. Uh, and uh and uh decide that there is pain and I think he's been very clear that there's going to be pain associated with it. this is going to drive up unemployment rate. this is going to drive up our spending. it's going it's going to be difficult to control this but may but all this coming together uh, may be another opportunity once again as we narrow in next year on raising our statutory debt limit, which we have to do uh, to avoid a default uh, it may, Focus the attention more on this, but uh, uh, we've been here before. Uh, I I want to be optimistic that something that people are going to start waking up that this is an issue, but uh, right now I'm not I'm not convinced it's going to be uh, we're going to be as we're going to be have as much success as we'd like in bringing this to the front burner. After all, um, what's going on right now is a uh, concern about. Uh, inflation. And I do believe that the uh, that what Jay Powell and the chairman is trying to do is the right path. Um, and we hope that he can land this plane without crashing it, but it's going to be pretty difficult. Tori, did you want to?
2: Sure.
3: Up? I just, I, I wanted to play devil's advocate just for a moment to represent a different perspective so Um, And that is there's a there's a group of economists who believe that we really don't need to worry about our debt. The United States occupies a really unique position in the world. We are the largest economy. We are the largest democracy Uh, in normal times. We have a peaceful transition of, of, of power. And this is the best place if you want, you know, for for entrepreneurs, if you want to start and grow a business, the United States is where you wanna be. We are the world's reserve currency. The dollar is the world's reserve currency. And because of all these special, unique att- aspects, attributes, characteristics of the United States and our economy, we don't need to worry about our debt. And if inflation is a problem, then we just need to raise taxes. What's wrong with that argument?
0: Raising taxes. Uh, <laughs> uh, is, is the Nothing's wrong with that argument, Tori. And I understand that argument. Uh, that yes, uh, I, I think faith in the federal, in our ability to honor our debt is good. I'm not too worried that we won't somehow honor our obligations. I just feel like paying uh, the interest, annual interest on the public debt jeopardizes our ability to do other important things with the dollars that we would have spent otherwise such as uh, maybe rather than paying the interest, we should be investing it in as such things as education or science or technology, those things that have a return on their investment later on. So if it's just a simple matter, it doesn't matter, then, hey, Katie, bar the door, spend away, Uh, accumulate as much as you want, and raise taxes. I haven't seen that as something that is a that is easy to do at all.
3: We can't even raise taxes on corporations that we think aren't paying their fair share.
0: <laughs> I know, I know.
2: That, so, that, that does strike me as a weak spot in the, that uh, modern monetary theory policy is the the solution is when inflation comes uh, Congress can just raise taxes. And I don't, uh, <laughs> as we've all observed, I don't see that that happening uh, anytime soon. In fact, inflation has gone way up and I don't see a lot of tax increase bills uh, coming out of either side. In fact, mm-hmm. governors and, and states are rushing to cut taxes uh, to give people relief from inflation. So the theory seems to fall flat in that regard. Uh, we're going to have to take our, our first break. Uh, you're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tori Gorman, Steve Robinson, and I are discussing the national debt with Bill Hoagland, senior vice president at the Bipartisan Policy Center. We'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby, and Concord Coalition Policy Director, Tori Gorman, and Chief Economist Steve Robinson, and I are talking with Bill Hoagland, Senior Vice President at the Bipartisan Policy Center. And uh, uh, we've been talking about the debt. Bill, there's something called the debt limit <laughs> that it uh, presumes, if you listen to the uh, the word, it, it kind of sounds like that means that there's some sort of limit on the debt, which I guess there is, although it doesn't seem to prevent the debt from going up. So what is the statutory debt limit?
0: And statutory debt limit goes back uh, to a law, a basic law uh, that is put into place, which says that once the federal government ex- reaches a certain level of debt, a number written into law, that at that point, the federal government can no longer issue a debt, and that law is one that uh, presents uh, an opportunity as well as a challenge to Congress because they have to literally pass another law to change that limit, uh, to increase it, uh, or else the federal government uh, technically would default. Now, in the history of the country, there have been a couple of small technical defaults. But in the history of the country, 220 some years history, we have never defaulted on paying our debt, and uh, but in order to do to avoid that, we have to uh, again pass a law that raises the, the debt limit, and we'll have to do that again. And uh, we're up against very close to that debt limit, but we think that uh, sometime next uh, uh, mid next year, right now is our current thinking here at CBO at uh, CBO at BPC. Wow, <laughs> uh, boy. Uh, That's a little bit of a Freudian slip uh, there, but we we will expect uh, that we're going to Congress will have to take this on and raise the debt limit. And of course, this has been a a piece of legislation that over the years, Graham Rudman Hollings, you mentioned uh, Mr. Rudman, Mr. Graham, uh, the uh, 2010, 2011 uh, negotiations all circled around that particular piece of legislation.
2: So it sometimes it gets caught up as almost like it gets held hostage. <laughs> it does. Uh, and, and as you mentioned we uh, I worry about it because uh, you know as I mentioned before we're at 31 trillion now the, the debt limit that that number that you mentioned statutorily in enacted into law is 31.4 trillion. So we're not that far beneath the uh, the debt limit right now and it can really complicate what's going to happen uh, in terms of a, a you know, uh, uh, negotiating appropriations bills, and can gum up all sorts of things. Is there a better way that we should be doing this? Or should we just get rid of the debt limit?
0: Personally, I'd like to get rid of the debt limit. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but at the same time, uh, I think that's a political politically difficult and will be difficult. Uh, because there are some who believe it is a leverage uh, that they need to be able to focus more directly on debt going forward. Uh, so um, so I think that we're probably gonna be stuck with this uh, debt limit for some time. I have a, have my thoughts are that Congress, when they pass budget resolutions, they have in that budget resolution, they have a statutory debt limit. And so once they pass budget resolutions, uh, they effectively have voted for increasing the debt limit. And I've never quite figured out why we couldn't automatically say, once you pass a budget resolution, you basically have adjusted the debt limit. I would prefer that approach. There are other approaches out there that we've been discussing here at the Bipartisan Policy Center. But uh, I think we're stuck with this debt limit for some time.
3: Agreed, unfortunately. Steve, we're talking
2: a lot about debt. And that reminds mm-hmm. me of student debt. You you wrote the issue brief for us Uh well-
1: yeah, we're we're uh, skeptical of the policy wisdom of the debt uh, forgiveness, as well as the potential uh, legalities. But I guess, you know, in the context of the debt discussion, you know, CBO, the Pen Wharton budget model, and, and even the administration now is admitting that, you know, this is going to cost hundreds of billions, if not as, as much as a trillion dollars over the next decade. And you know that that would would seem to be a, a big problem in terms of the debt and the debt limit, but there's this sort of interesting wrinkle that we don't treat credit programs the way we treat other programs in the budget. So, um, you know, it, is the trillion dollar student loan debt forgiveness going to drive up the national debt, or what's how, how does how does that work?
0: Oh, my, you're right, Steve, in terms of the way we handle federal. Uh, credit programs is different than uh, the way we have, ha, handle other uh, cash-based type accounting system that we have, and as a consequence, I don't think in the near term you'll see any kind of a major increase in this in our debt limit or debt uh, that because as uh, this is a payment of revenues that would have come in over time. And what this does, from my perspective, is lower the amount of revenue that would have been collected if we're looking at the debt limit itself. So while it may be scored as increasing the deficit in the near term, it does not have the same effect over the long term on our debt, because that is more a function of when those payments revenues that would have come in are not going to be coming in. Uh, so I I think their difference, it's going to be messy. Uh, personally, I just don't think it was a, wise decision uh at all uh I'm not opposed to students I think students <laughs> have debt and not all that uh, but uh, we made a commitment we made a uh, they made a commitment when they signed up to pay back there are all other, other alternatives and other ways of getting your debt uh, relieved and those should have been pursued as opposed to a carte blanche just relieving the debt uh of uh, the, all this uh, some whatever it was, uh, millions of students out there that have these uh, loans. What about the, the method of accomplishing it? I mean, it does seem like the
2: president is taking on a, an awful lot of responsibility for just canceling
0: on behalf of the federal government without uh, having congressional input. Steve has done a wonderful piece. I understand that I need to read about this, but from my perspective, this is a a form of essentially canceling revenues coming in, and canceling revenues coming in, to me, still goes back to Article I of the Constitution, and therefore this was illegal uh, from from that perspective. Uh, This should have been an action of Congress uh, to make such an important, important decision as as the president made to, to relieve the, all this debt out there. So I consider it to be uh, challengeable, at least uh, uh, legally, uh, the decision that was made, because it does have the effect of either increasing the debt or increasing the deficits in the near term. And that should be an action taken by Congress, not by an executive order.
2: Yeah, I think you get uh, agreement uh, around, the, around the table uh, here. I know the Bipartisan Policy Center is hosting a book discussion this week. I plan to be there on the last final book uh, written by Alice Rivlin, who we both had the privilege of working with uh, over the years. And uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to that book discussion without scooping anything, Bill. I just what memories did you have of uh, working with Alice and what made her so special?
0: Well, thank you very much for pointing that out, Bob. Uh, uh, Yes, the final book uh, she was working on right up to her death. She did not complete it completely, but her siblings, uh, Alan Rivlin and Sherry Rivlin, uh, daughter-in-law, worked to bring it to completion here with the final chapters. It's called Divided We uh, Fall. My memories of Alice. I owe, quite frankly, I owe my entire career to Alice. She plucked me out of the Department of Agriculture many, many years ago when CBO was created. I was one of the first employees of CBO, uh, mainly because I was uh, had a, had developed a little model for projecting uh, uh, food stamps at that time, uh, called food stamps. Now SNAP. And I had uh, developed a little model, and one of the first bills that the CBO was going to be have to analyze was a farm bill, which included that. So uh, my memories of Alice go back all the way before I owe her my career. Uh, it subsequently we ended up here at the Bipartisan Policy Center, where she and my another boss of many years, Senator Domenici, and Alice worked as you did, Bob on a task force here for debt and debt reduction. Uh, So we've been battling this and Alice was battling it up to the end uh, of her career. I will say the focus of her book uh, uh, is, yes, on that career. But she's also, uh, remember, she passed in May of 2019. She was not here during COVID. She was not here during um, uh, the elections of 2020. She was not here on January uh, the 6th. Uh, she certainly is, wasn't here for the inflation that we're seeing in interest rates. I guess the question is, and we'll, we'll address, and it is addressed in part here, what would Alice say today? Uh, and that will be kind of the focus of, of, of our discussion with uh, a star-studded group besides Alan and Sherry Rivlin, Bob Reicher, her first deputy, Belle Saulhill from Brookings, who worked with her for many, many years former mayor anthony williams who worked with her on the uh, dc uh, financial board and uh, bill crystal uh, also who was friend so these are uh, we'll never know but they were close that they may have think what alice would have to say about today you know uh, one
2: of the things that always impressed me so much is that she was uh, a towering intellectual figure with just an enormous amount of experience all throughout the government. And yet, she really enjoyed coming out on the road with us. When we had our so-called fiscal wake-up tour for five years, 2005 to 2010, Alice was a frequent traveler and kept encouraging us to to do more. She was really, really convinced that uh, public engagement and public education needed to be part of it and i just uh love that about her so much i also liked having her out on the road because whenever we got difficult questions we're all just sort of look at her for the gave <laughs> g- 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 gave us the rest of us some cover <laughs> well bill i think that that's all the time we have for thank you, thank this you segment. For and we really really appreciate your uh coming on and uh talking about the dead in all forms and sharing some memories of alice rivlin Uh, This is Bob Bixby. We'll be right back after these short messages with another segment of Facing the Future when we'll talk to Steve Robinson about a new issue brief that he's done on something he calls the Social Security Unfairness Act. And he'll explain that when we come back. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby, and I'm talking with uh, Tori Gorman, the Concord Coalition's Policy Director, and Steve Robinson, Chief Economist. And uh, Steve, you've written another issue brief. And this time, it talks about Social Security and um, people who are have both covered employment from Social Security and uncovered uh, pensions in... Um, uh, it, jobs that were not covered by social security. It gets a little bit tricky about uh, how to avoid um, double counting, you might say. Um, And so Congress has come up with this bill called the Social Security Fairness Act, which essentially would eliminate attempts to achieve parity between these two groups. And, And you've described it as the Social Security Unfairness Act. Uh, do you uh, you want to take a shot at uh, explaining things?
3: <laughs> Unpack that.
1: <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, s- sadly, and this is part of the public policy problem of this issue is it's confusing and complicated. And so as a result, <laughs> uh, people don't often know what to think about it. But yeah, so let me back up and, and start at, at the, the 30,000 foot level. So Social Security was enacted in 1935 and there were concerns at the time, that the federal government could not legally, constitutionally tax the state and local governments. And so state and local employees were excluded from social security coverage. So, Which, meant, which it, means
3: they, they didn't pay their FICA tax, right? That's no, what I
1: mean. Right. When you, yeah. when you so say the, they're
3: not covered, it means they did not contribute to social security.
1: Exactly. So non-coverage means that you don't pay into the system and you don't collect from the system. You're, you're excluded from both ends, the taxing and the receiving right And so in the 1950s they said, well, you know, if the states want to join, uh, it should be a voluntary decision. And so they allowed states to begin joining the social security system. and most of them did. Um, and I think in 8'3, it used to be the states could opt in or they could opt out. And in 1983 they said, well, any state that is in the system today, you got to stay, you can't leave. So they, they sort of closed the door on the opt-out, but they still allowed states to opt in. And then finally, in 1990, Congress passed a law and said, look, we're going to make everybody pay the FICA tax unless you participate in a pension plan that provides comparable benefits. And so around 1990, it became sort of mandatory that states had to participate uh, unless they offered their own pension plans. And of course, a lot of states do. And, and, and it's actually, I think the numbers, and it depends on where you look to get your numbers, there's about 20 million state and local uh, government employees, teachers, firefighters, policemen, mm-hmm. you know, the Department of Motor Vehicles. Bureaucrats,
3: yeah. yeah mm-hmm. All
1: the people who work for state and local governments.
3: Mm-hmm. So
1: nationally, there's about 20 million and somewhere between five and 6 million are excluded. So about a quarter, over a quarter of, state and local employees are are exempt from social security. They don't pay in and they don't collect. And it varies by state. There are a dozen or so states where almost none of the employees are covered and the other 30, 40 states, virtually everybody's covered. So it varies a lot. Um, And so that's sort of the background is that you have this large group of people who are exempt from social security. They don't pay in, they don't collect. However, Social Security is an interesting program. So if you have a married couple, and let's say one of spouse is a teacher, and the other spouse is, uh, you know, works for the auto company, he's covered and the spouse is not. So what happens, though, is when you retire, uh, the, the retired uh, auto guy uh, collects a pension, and his spouse is entitled to what's called a spousal benefit. And if he dies, the spouse is entitled to a survivor's benefit. And so Social Security pays these extra benefits to people uh, to in, in, the, in the case of married couples. Now, if both spouses are covered by Social Security, there are these rules that offset one benefit against the other. So essentially, if you're entitled to a retirement benefit and a spousal or survivor benefit, you don't really get both of them. You get essentially the larger of the two. You, you get your own plus the difference. And effectively, that's to say that if you get, if, you, if you're if you entitled to more than one benefit, pick the biggest one and that's the one you get. That's sort of the rule. So there's this offset. And what happened was you had state and local employees who were married to somebody who was covered or alternatively, let's say you have a teacher. And so in the year that they're teaching, they're not covered by social security, but in the summer, they take a part-time job working at the local bookstore or whatever. They're covered part-time in the summer when they're not teaching. And then in the School year, they're teaching, and they're not covered. So you have these situations where people, either because of their spouse or because of some part-time job, either before or after or during their their careers as a a state and local government employee, they gain coverage of their own. Well, before the late 70s and the early 80s, when they, they decided to fix this, there was this inequity where essentially someone who qualified as a state and local government employee they were not paying into Social Security, they were exempt from Social Security, but they had this other job or they had this spouse. It allowed them to collect benefits both from their own retirement system, non-covered retirement system, plus it allowed them to collect from Social Security. But because of the way the law was written, there was no offset. So essentially they could, I hate to use the term double dip, but essentially they were collecting both their, their pension that was supposed to be the proxy for Social Security And they were collecting the Social Security benefits and there was no offset. So they were being treated more favorably than a couple who lived across the street. And both spouses in that case were covered. So you had a situation where a a married couple in which one was covered and one was not was getting more favorable treatment than another couple in which both spouses were covered. And so you had this disparity. So in 1977, they passed what's called the government pension offset. And then in 1983, they passed what was called the Windfall Elimination Provision. And so these provisions have been in in law now for, you know, 40 years or more. And obviously, nobody likes them because they're complicated and confusing. And people who get these pensions think, well, why can't I collect my Social Security because I paid in and, and participated or my spouse paid in and they participated and I should be able to get these benefits. So quite often, they're unaware of the fact that these rules that we call the WEP and the GPO, there's another version of those that applies to everybody else. And they're called the dual entitlement rule. And then there's this, this issue of how the benefit formula works under social security, uh, having to deal with the progressivity uh, of, the, uh, of the benefit formula. And so anyway, the, essentially there's this feeling that somehow we're picking on, we being the Congress by passing these two laws, they're picking on the the state and local employees who are exempt, and they're being treated unfairly. And so Congress introduced this bill called the Social Security Fairness Act. And what the Fairness Act does is it repeals these two provisions of law that were enacted in order to achieve some parity between covered and non-covered workers. And so from my perspective, you, you can argue that these two provisions are not well drafted, they they don't mm-hmm. exactly produce the intended result. There there's some, you know, some uh, sometimes they over reduce the benefit, and sometimes they under reduce the benefit. It's there's, hard to get it just right.
3: Yeah, there's a lot of arbitrariness in that yes. in that offset. It's not really it is. They just sort of picked an amount when they put this formula together and right. and threw it into legislation yeah, with so any there, kind of of analysis or forethought.
1: Exactly. Well, you know, this was again it was the late seventies, early eighties. Uh, there weren't a lot of people running around with micro simulation computer models that could like look at all the different ways of doing this and who it would affect and how it would affect them. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, there, there was an imprecision to the way they did this. So legitimately people don't like these provisions because they say they don't do the job correctly. And there's, there's some validity to that argument. In fact, I I share that view. Um, But the notion of simply repealing the provisions Aside from the fact that it would cost 180 billion uh, dollars, and, and it would also accelerate the exhaustion of the trust fund from from around 2034 or 2035 to 2034, um, but but there is a legitimate need to provide some sort of offset between these benefits because that's the way we treat people who are covered only by Social Security. So if you only have Social Security, these offsets apply, and the notion of simply repealing them. In my view, would be unfair because there is a legitimate sort of issue here. So, really, the bigger issue is not should we repeal these provisions, but should we fix or reform or, or or change the provisions. And in fact, I my I'm working on another paper yeah. in which I look at the, the different ways in which you could go about reforming these provisions. And there's no perfect way of doing it because. I mean, as I pointed out before, Social Security benefit formula is progressive, so that if you're a low-income, a low-age worker, you get a bigger benefit relative to your wages. If you're a high-income worker, you get a smaller benefit. That progressivity is not copied in a normal pension plan. So, if you're in a, a defined benefit pension plan as a state and local employee, there is no progressive formula. The, the formula is usually a flat percentage. So, you take your highest three years or highest five years of wages multiply it by a percentage of two or 3%, multiply it by your years of service. Well, when you're trying to offset a proportional benefit against a progressive benefit, they don't always match up. And so it's hard to design a rule that, that seamlessly applies in all situations, at all wage levels, for all lengths of careers, and you get a lot of variation. And so the question is, how do you balance off these the, the trade-off between equity and uh, fairness in terms of of providing equal benefits, recognizing that there's a social insurance element to social security where we want to provide extra assistance to people who have, you know, lower wages or they have a sporadic career because of unemployment or because they were taking care of kids or their elderly parents. So there's a lot of sort of nuance to consider in how you design a replacement. Um, but, But anyway, that that, that clearly, in my view, is a better solution is, is let's fix these uh, provisions and not simply repeal them, because that, in fact, would would go too far uh, and create a disparity with other other workers who are covered by Social Security.
2: Well, it seems like the easiest fix is always to just get rid of something altogether. It's, it's really interesting that uh, back in the 70s and early 80s, Congress was actually trying to dig into the weeds and really very politically difficult choices, it seems to me right now.
1: Yeah, I mean, but but remember, in in the late 70s, and again, in the early 80s, those were the last two times where Social Security was in financial trouble, and the trust funds were approaching insolvency. And so actually, Congress didn't pass these provisions as standalone bills. They were part of a much bigger reform. And so they passed not as freestanding bills. I mean, politically, the people who are involved are police, policemen and teachers and firefighters and politically members of Congress are not going to willingly, knowingly try to <laughs> uh, try to take on those those constituencies and and, right. and and annoy them. And so
2: I guess that's all we're just about run out of time. I guess that really is a good argument for comprehensive uh, Social Security reform that would look at all aspects. Uh, of a uh, solvency plan. But we're going to have to leave it there this week. Uh, That's all for uh, this week's edition of Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby, and I'll be back next week with another edition of Facing the Future.